Hi, and welcome to the SIF podcast, where we discuss advice and solutions for the modern therapist whilst trying to help the public find the right treatment and advice for themselves. I'm your host, Mike James. Welcome to episode 15. I'm delighted to introduce someone who's got an unrivaled CV and an unrivaled passion for helping therapists and patients alike. I'm so pleased to introduce the exceptional Paula Clayton. Welcome to the show, Paula. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you very much, Mike. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be on and thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, that's our pleasure. Now, you're someone that we've always wanted to get on because you've got such a esteemed background and and probably a different background it's fair to say to the average therapist you've worked in in arenas and in circles that is the dream of many therapists and what we always love to do with someone who's got that specialist background is to just pick their brains to shine a light into a certain arena for those who may want to or haven't had the opportunity to work in that arena but often to show that it's not that different sometimes to to the worlds that most of us work in on a daily basis. So in the shortest possible way, because we know how deep your your sort of CV is, just give the guys a whistle-stop view of your background, your career to date, and and who is Paula Clayton? Ooh, okay. Um, so I've got 20-plus years, probably nearly 25 years now, working in elite sport. Uh, started off in uh, championship and premiership football, then moved into working with the English Institute of Sport and British Athletics for, I don't know, something like 12, 13 years. Uh, very fortunate to be able to travel to World European Championships, Europa Cup that was at the time, Commonwealth Games and three Olympics. Um, I have got three private practices as well. So I'm able to kind of transfer some of those skills into private practice. And I think I've said to you before, Mike, that it's always a real I always find it really rewarding to have the private practice work and the elite sport work working together, and it makes me better in both. I've also been, um, I'm, I'm also the elite sport director for the SMA, uh, the, sport, uh, the Society for Soft Tissue Therapists. I work for BMI. Uh, I've just started there, actually. I'm going to start up a new sports injury clinic for them. I've got three private practices, I think I just said. I've written a couple of books, so I'm quite busy. <laughs> I like to keep myself busy. Um, so yeah, I've got, I've, um, I've been very, I say very fortunate, but also there's an awful lot of people that want to, like you say, want to get into sport, but I don't think they realize it's not quite what it's cut up to be as well either. I think they might think that it's just all of this, this, this glory, but actually it's just incredibly hard work and full of, uh, lots of challenges. Yeah. And you somehow managed to throw being a mum into all that mix as well. Oh, yes, I'm a mum as well. So, so yeah. <laughs> and um, and I think something, I get asked it a lot, and I'm sure your answer would be the same, but when people see someone who seems to have so much going on, then how do you fit that in and how do you remain so passionate about doing it all? That's a great question. I I always try to describe the fact that, and it doesn't sound very controlled, but my brain kind of takes me places that I I must need to go and I follow it. And so although it seems like I'm running around like a headless chicken, I am very organized and I do pick and choose the things that I do. I have learned over a long period of time how to say no politely to things. And but I do love to be 
um, part of somebody's journey. I really love to help the athlete to get that extra little bit. I really love to be able to get somebody to be able to do that for their bra strap. It's so rewarding. There's there's no job quite like it, is there? Where you can just it, it's positives every day, even if they're tiny little tiny little marginal gains. They're positive every day, and and so you know it's a joy. It's a joy. It is a joy, and it's also that diversity that you just never know what's coming next. You never know who's coming through so that true. door and what, what their needs or, or wants will be and how you can help them. Um, let's zoom in on that elite sport then. I think that's something okay. listeners will be really interested on. So athletics is where you've really doubled down your, your specialism. So what made you transition from the football world into the athletics world? That's a good question too. So I was headhunted into football and I... I I never thought I'd get the same banter and joy when I left football. I really enjoyed that team sport. The thing about working with a team, and the only thing that I would have come close to it within track and field is working with um, heptathletes. Because when you go to places like Gotsits with a heptathlete, you're on the sidelines, they're competing, and you can watch. In most other avenues of athletics or track and field, you're, you never know when somebody's coming back crying, whether they've won something or whether they've had a really disastrous time. And it was always like, go to Paula, go to Paula, because it was, it was me really to start with for a long time and just men. And so I was sent, you know, kind of the mum of the team anyway. So I started off in football with all of these guys and the banter was amazing. I was obviously quite young, but I fit in really well once they realised I'd don't take I didn't take any kind of crap really and they they started to see me as an equal and a and somebody not to be um I guess not to be messed with but also they had real respect for me and I I appreciated that and I really struggled with that transition because when I first went to track and field I was like what how am I going to treat all these girls which is outrageous what an outrageous thought because actually they're way tougher than the guys were um and and I, and I did, it's, I struggled with the team sport, moving to an individual and looking after people that were incredibly intelligent, knew what they wanted, incredibly demanding, but in a, it, rightly so. They, they wanted what they wanted. They knew what they wanted. And there was no wavering from that until you got to know them and then you could guide them in a, in a better direction. So at one stage, it was just deep, go deep. And it was like I had to educate them out of that, really. Um, and then I, then I loved it. And, you know, I don't work there now, obviously, but I'm still in touch with loads of athletes still, they, I I really care about them and I really cared about them really maximizing their potential. And I think that that's the key because if you're there to just suddenly try to climb the ladder and become, um, you know, this is who I treat, this is who I treat. You're not, you're no longer looking after the person in front of you. You're looking after your own things. So moving from, so again, I got headhunted out of football into the English Institute of Sport, where I started working with multi-sports, lots of different England rugby, England football, England, I mean, ladies, um, England hockey, uh, boxing, blah, blah, blah. Quite a lot of famous names in boxing and cycling all came through the doors at EIS. And then um, from there, I started working with track and field, and then I got fully assigned to track and field. They request they were going to take me out of EIS and put me into UKA and offer me a full time job there. But instead, they came to an agreement, and I was just fully assigned to track and field. 
and that's when I started doing all the traveling and um, and everything with them. And and again, one of those one of the things about track and field is you have to be pit, you have to be chosen for every competition, every warm weather camp every olympics you don't just automatically go just just because in you you're in the team so you constantly have to be producing um producing results and so you know by the time i left i was the longest standing member of the medical team and um people come and go and they don't last long and they don't it's not whether they suffer falls gladly they have a very specific way of working and if you don't fit that mold or if you're not a chameleon like i am and i'm, I'm an army brat so if you're not a bit of a chameleon then it's tough yeah and I think like one thing that really jumped off the page there, without disclosing any ages, you got headhunted into football as a female at a time when that wasn't the norm at all. Not at all. How did how did you find that transition in? Um, I I I decided to go and do the FA treatment and management of injuries, which is that two year kind of football physio. Um, and from there, I was working with Mark Leather. I don't know if you know Mark Leather. He worked for Liverpool. And I was also working with a guy called Andy Thomas. And Andy Thomas, he also used to work in football, but he's an equestrian physio now, really high up, um, very respected as both of them are. And uh, Andy and Andy kind of got me into um, EIS later on. He's the one who headmunted me into EIS because of the course, because I had um, top marks basically in in that that um, course, which is the toughest course, despite my two master's degrees that I've ever done. And um, and then um, Mark kind of encouraged me into football, and and I started working with Birmingham City to start with, and then I worked with um, West Bromwich Albion for four years. The FA Diploma is a ruthless course. It's a fun course. I really enjoyed doing mine. I did mine when I was in the military, and we had um, who came to teach us? It was a couple of ex-military guys. Pete Collinson. No, Pete. Don't know him. Um, No, Godfrey. Pete and Noel were both ex-military, ex-military physios who were working as civilians in the MOD, but running FA courses. Okay. And then um, Mike Hurley. Yes, he was there. Do you know yeah. Mike? Yeah, so Healy. Mike came along. Healy. Healy, Healy. Healy. Yes, yeah, 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 he was yeah. there. And, and um, I loved the course, brilliant course. But oh, literally, it's it a test exam, test exam. The oh, whole my God. Through. 15 and, hours um, a day for two weeks. And, and you have to... The practical ones, the practical exams were like Gestapo interrogation. They were. were like, they were horrendous. Awful. Horrendous. And you left thinking, I failed that. And yeah. they come out and say, oh, well done. That was brilliant. Yeah. Was awful, awful. <laughs> That's course. so true. The yeah. thing is that I loved it. I found, found it really challenging. But the biggest key for that course is, if it's still going, I'm sure it is, you have got to go there knowing all of your stuff because there's no time to catch up. None. There's yeah. zero time to catch up. You have to know everything and be able to just do that. Because yeah. as soon as you get there and you don't know one page on that thing that they send you, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> Those three big books, part A, part B, and then the uh, the exactly. rehab book. Part exactly. A, part B, and oh the rehab book. And think, uh, I'll peruse these gently over the net. No. No, no. not a chance. Months it. worth of work before if you get there. they're still sitting in the house. Yeah, me too. Mine somewhere. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of the stuff now I remember being taught on that, you're like, oh my God, wouldn't do that yeah. these days. But uh, No. So zooming in on athletics, the one thing that, Here's a myth that I hope you're probably going to bust for a lot straight away. This um, belief of these precious, fragile athletes who break really easily. What's your thoughts on that? No, Uh, there is. They are the ones I've worked with pretty much everybody that you can probably name going through British athletics. There, There are some who have learnt 
and their coaches have learned over time the word overtraining. Obviously, that's the same in every sport, not just in track and field. There are some that have learned there are certain techniques that have to be addressed, obviously, just like in any sport. And those are the ones that may have been considered made of glass or um, needed a hell of a lot of um, or thought they needed a hell of a lot of input. I think there was a in the in the darker days, I think there was an awful lot of treatment for treatment's sake and I think there was a history of this is what works and this is what is needed and it took time and trust to be able to turn that round now I'm a man I I do manual therapy so it's not like I'm trying to talk them away from manual therapy because it has its place without question in my my opinion and my experience it has its place but I but there's there's a there's a difference between being absolutely battered and being able to function the next day or, or or go and do another set, for example. And I know that there's some, some people there that still really value very, very, very deep work. And then there's others that have just come out the other side of it and, and seen the benefit of it. So when it comes to, are they very fragile? Absolutely not. They are some of the strongest people I've ever met and they are incredibly, um, because it's their sport, it's only them to depend on. They're incredibly um, strong-willed about what is right for them. And you want them to be that way. When somebody's coming into the team that isn't that way, it's a worry. And they have to, and luckily they get picked up by the older athletes and kind of uh, trained, if you like, in in what in how how they should be. And um, and then we've got some great things like the Athlete Commission now that is um is really speaking for. Um, and letting the athletes to be able to speak up on their own behalf now, which is just phenomenal. And there's some great people running them. And Kelly Southerton started that and obviously isn't on the board, but, um, for, for, you know, for obvious reasons, because she started it up. But, you know, that girl, strong. Yeah, yeah. And she often gets, in the annals of British heptathlon, she sometimes doesn't get the spotlight put on her achievements, but she was phenomenal athlete. Phenomenal. Uh, she's, a, she's an only child and she grew up in a, you know, in a in a small place, the Isle of Wight, and she just is just she's just power. She's just I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and she'll get broken down, which she has been, and she picks herself back up again every time. She is a very very she comes across incredibly waspy. I use that word. Hopefully, everybody knows what that means. But she is just great. I I do get on what they call difficult. You know, she's been targeted as difficult or touted as difficult she's not she's just passionate and I do end up I I did end up getting past all of the difficult athletes because of uh, being a (laughs) mum I always think when you're talking about those elite athletes the track and field stars I've always thought that the misconception that I'm glad you agreed with as far as the fragile stuff some people just just miss that an individual sport there's no team to fall back on as far as in their race in their event no nope. and when we see them breaking down at the highest level of competition effectively these people are operating like finely tuned formula one cars and race horses they're they're peaking at such a level of performance that they are probably on the edge more yeah. so than other athletes at different times. Absolutely. I think they're teetering on the edge. Yeah. They're pushing themselves as hard as they possibly can within the realms of their capacity and within, you know, within their coaching, within and, and trying to, especially if they've got rounds 
um, they're, they're trying to make sure that they peak at the right times, right time of year, right time of the competition. Timing is perfect. If they're jumping, if they're hopping, if they're pole vaulting, if they're sprinting, it's peaking and making sure that you can actually make it through the rounds and peak at the right time in the final, but also to get yourself into the final. It's incredibly pressured, you know, and they are and they're doing this basically. I mean, yes. Fortunately, when the EIS was um, started up, they have all of these performance lifestyle, um, you know, people and all sorts of things to kind of help them transition through life so that they don't have to be, especially when they come to become a full time athlete. So they then had the help to kind of help with uh, housing or if they were coming from university or where where are they going to train? How are they going to get to train? Maybe we have to pay for them to get a driving lesson. That was when that was established. But prior to that, the people that were kind of coming in. So when I first came in, you know, we, we were in the likes of Dean Macy, um, Dean, uh, Denise Lewis, all of those kind of people that had already kind of made it big and were kind of still doing quite well, but then was kind of almost transitioning out. Those guys had nothing, you know, and but even Kelly, when she came in, she came in as an older athlete. There wasn't, she did come into the EIS, but it was just, just started. So it's not like she got all the benefits from that. And she worked part-time when she, she got going as many of them do and did and do and did. Um, so they, yeah, they, they, they are pushing the boundaries. They may have a full, they may have a job as well. And, and, and a lot of people that have gotten to Olympic final may not have been funding either, you know? Mm. Uh, so, you know, they, they have to be, an all round just amazing powerhouse of of just organization planning fitness you know being able to communicate and listen and collaborate with people that want the, their best interests and then when they do come on to funding then they've got the fortunate thing of having things like biomechanists and um, access to any medical that they want and access to um access to nutritious sports nutritious high level sports nutritious etc etc but when they're not on funding they don't get any of that mm. so they've got to do it themselves yeah. they've got to find ways yeah so i think one thing as i always love learning about in the different realms of elite sport is because it's unique to to elite sport talk to us about the preparation for and then the management of the athletes during things like a training camp or a major games what's different okay. there to, to to normal physio work or therapist work so i'm going to start with training camps because they are a, if you ever get a chance to do one they are a novel way of really getting to know the athlete well socially as well as um within their um you know their training also their coaches and often the performance manager or performance coach or head of coaching whatever they decide to call them at, at different times they're often there too so you can also forge relationships with those now the athlete um within track and field certainly it was athlete centered coach driven and then um support team supported if you like and they have um so being able to build and for um grow those relationships in a warm weather camp is massive you have more opportunity to see the forces going through the body what kind of you know you, you have time to chat to biomechanists in the fact that they're there on the camp as well they'll be filming they'll be chatting through quite quickly with the coach what they've seen and the kind of things uh, they they would come up with so Paul Bryce for example would come up with a um, advice for the coach and saying I think you know we need to look at this I could be standing there listening to that as well. And then that does influence the kind of things that I might be looking at when I'm when I'm in the treatment room. Um, it also gives you an opportunity to, if there are some anomalies in their biomechanics or their 
um, discomfort, I guess, in some of the uh, techniques that they do. There's there's times to address those where you don't have necessarily have that time at a competition. So it's a real good time to get to know somebody's body, the forces that they're doing, the comp- the kind of athlete that they are, what their goals are, what their aspirations are what what their fears are, what their worries are, and also the way their body works and what seems normal to them at that particular time, on that particular day, in that particular temperature, doing that particular uh, technique. And then you learn all of those and you put them all together. And what you have is then a picture of a baseline. So you're at a warm weather camp. If you've, if you've So you're fairly healthy if you've got to the warm weather camp, otherwise you'd be sent home. Um, and then so you're getting an idea of 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 the um, the problems and also the excellent training that this person's going through. And you can and, and then that is a baseline so that when you are back in the country and you're no longer warm weather and you're kind of between that and going to a competition, you've also you can keep an eye on that because you're you're, you're well you're you know, you're well rehearsed in that particular. And that's just that one person, you know, times that by how many. So. You have the advantage of, um, so we don't like to talk, I mean, it does happen, but we don't like to talk about having, making a, an athlete therapy dependent, but there is there are relationships that are forged. So you could imagine if you've got your favorite hairdresser and you're going to get your hair cut and you turn up and they say, so-and-so is doing it today, you're like, oh, I might wait. Okay, and the same thing happens. And it's not necessarily that that athlete's uh, dependent on you. It's much more about the fact that she knows my body. She knows how I train. She knows my competition. She knows my coach. She knows my goals. She knows what I'm going for. So actually, right, rather stick with her. So I'm going to wait and speak to her about it because I don't have to explain everything over and over and over again to this person that knows me. So that's the fortunate thing about being able to or being chosen, like I said right at the beginning, to be able to go to camp after camp after training camp after competition after competition after competition is that you do become one of the staple people when you're at a competition it's very different it's very highly charged the the behaviors are very different so in a camp it's all laughing and joking banter music's blaring it's at the top of the volume they're having fun they're dancing they're messing around you know they're just basically having fun and just getting on with it at a competition that person that's really chatty really outgoing can just headphones on so therefore you then have that situation where there's a person in front of you now and they're saying to you oh my Achilles is something yeah headphones on you can't even communicate with them so if you don't know them and you don't know their body and you don't know what's normal for them and you don't know their personality and how to talk to them and how to calm them down and how to assure them reassure them then it becomes difficult for somebody new coming into the team so having that you know, having that capability and having that relationship is massive, just like it is with private practice, right? People come in or you see people you're, you know, you're coaching or, you know, you're, you're doing your online stuff with or somebody that comes into your clinic. You, you've already know, you know what they can do, you know what they could do. And then you kind of think, well, they're not being able to do that right now. So what am I going to do about that? It's the same thing. And then you have these, but then you have the headphones. So you can imagine somebody coming into your private practice here and now not talking to you. And they're just like expecting you to be able to just do, just do it. You know what? You know me, you know my body, just do it. And they're, they're you know, and then other people come in and they're blah, 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 blah. You can't get a word in edgeways because they're so hyper about it. So yeah, it's, ad- it's adapting to those different things and it just makes you a little bit more in tune with them. And, and that's where I think the hands-on stuff comes into its own because you've got to feel, you know what you're looking for, you know what you're feeling, you know what's right for them. They come in and they go, oh, I've got this, this, this. And then you go, no, it's fine. 
you're absolutely fine it's normal and they go are you sure because you know you would know you go you're perfect you're fine off you go and they're like okay and they believe you you know and 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 therefore they calm down their anxiety calms down because some of that you know added discomfort comes from pressure doesn't it and anxiety and yeah. you know the whole brain science thing so did I answer your question you did because because <laughs> I was I was trying to lead you to get to what I what you brilliantly put which is basically that whatever you're working whatever levels it appears that that you know your people are at good old-fashioned communication trust therapeutic alliance and then honesty and just building an individual relationship it yeah. works wherever you are, whatever you Everywhere. do, whatever you're with, it's the same thing. It's completely and, transferable. And and then, as you say, because some of the little questions I had jotted down, which you sort of answered all in one there, was what is different in elite sport to, to non-elite sport and, and everyday patients and athletes? And what's the same? Well, it's it's pretty much the same stuff. You just you yeah. just adapt. And, and I, I love the word you used earlier, which definitely stealing for the title about the chameleon side of it. It's just yeah. becoming adaptable to to the situation you're in. Yeah, because if you don't, you're on, you're gone. And if you're not, so for example, if you having seen many, having been part of some amazing teams and being part of some awful teams, the awful teams are te- tend to be awful, in my opinion, due to certain behaviours, and those certain behaviours don't necessarily fit in a team. So they don't, you know, it's about themselves rather than the team. So the thing I would say that is different between sport and um, working for yourself or working, um, I guess you could be working, yeah, of course you could be working in another team, but you're definitely autonomous. Working in sport is that there is a, there's a big, um, there's a big sort of case conference-y kind of group kind of people we're all looking for we you know we're all working for this common purpose we're all trying to get exceptional results we've got great communication hopefully we've got our clear roles established but we're all working so it's we are in this athlete-centered coach driven and quite often I think that this is a thing that could is missing in private practice because if you can have this bunch of people around you that you can refer to um, and you can that you trust it's really nice to be able to kind of bring all of these people in together and and really have a full focus on this one person it works incredibly well in a in a case conference where you're sitting with an athlete and a coach and then all of the other support staff and we're just trying to think about how's the best way of getting this person forward how's the best way of helping this person you know achieve or optimize their results or you know whatever um and you know it's all it's like you just said it's about solid uh, solid relationships and effective processes as well and they can be taken into um, into private practice as well or into a hospital where there are teams but I'm very fortunate in the teams that I've worked in and whether that's due to my personality and my chameleon like personality is that I always tend to be very um, I'm very included and that the hierarchy is kind of taken out of the way and Neil Black was excellent at doing that. He was really good at kind of uh, making a, he changed the title so that we'd, we'd have sports osteos and sports chiros from Canada. And we'd have, um, we'd have somebody from, a, you know, that we'd have uh, soft tissue therapists, we'd have physiotherapists, and they just all became physical therapists. 
So nobody was one more important than the other. They all had their roles and they were all imp an important part of the team. So rather than there being that traditional hierarchy that would kind of maybe knock you out of the system or make you feel undervalued and maybe not empower you, he had a very good way of empowering people to be able to come forward freely and to be able to discuss things and say, what do you think? What, what about that? And just be, be able to quite comfortably go, it's a good idea. It might not work this time. It's a good idea. Well, let's park that. We'll talk about that later. Or that's bang on. Never even thought of that. But to have the freedom to be able to bring that up and not feel threatened, that's unusual. You know, and if you can, you can find a team like that, happy days. You know I mean, and, yeah. and it's this, it's the secret to success in any team yes. in elite sport. You know, we, we we read book after book after book about the success of things like British cycling, and it's all yeah. that sort of same model. Um, yeah. Before we before we move on to something that you really segued into nicely there, which is MDT teams, um, putting you on the spot. Then back to your elite sport track and field days. What was the biggest high that you achieved? Oh, there's two. <laughs> but I, I uh, actually, there's, there's a couple. I have been, um, re I'm, I love jumpers, okay? I love heptathletes and I love jumpers. And I, I managed to kind of like my way into that, that kind of, that direction. I was always really fortunate to be able to go watch um, those and kind of take myself away from the warm-up track and go watch the triple jumping and the high jumping and the, some of the long jumping, but and certainly the heptathlete, heptathlon. Um, and I, there's two me big memories that I have working in elite sport. Three big memories. One was when the baggies first got promoted to the premiership, and we were went from championship to premiership, was which is absolutely awesome. The second one was in uh, twenty. Um, when was that? T 2008. Beijing Olympics when Chrissy O got the gold 400 and I was back in the I was back in I didn't see that so I was back in the village and the whole block the GB block with all the flags hanging out it felt like it was doing this as they sang the national anthem we were downstairs I was treating somebody who was going off to or just come back from something and I was kind of manning the fort back at the ranch we all took turns and the whole block, we had two blocks right next to each other. And they just, it just erupted in the national anthem. And, you know, I was just like, oh, God. And I was, we were all singing at the tops of our lungs. And it was just amazing. And I was in the room with uh, the, the, um, the BOA um, team, medical team. And obviously I was part of the track and field team. And we were all together and we were all like arms around each other singing. It was just phenomenal. And then the second, the third one was Super Saturday, 2012. What I've I've been to football matches. I've been to some big American sports. My husband's Canadian, but uh, has uh, he's American kind of thing. Um, and he, uh, I've been to some big sports, and that that ninety thousand or ninety five thousand capacity, all cheering for the one person. The you know was just like wow, and it just made you just made you cry. It made your heart pump. It made you proud. It made you. It, it, but I could only say it was like being a mum who's proud of their kids. Do you know what I mean? They've done so well. It's got nothing to do with me, really, per se. We're part of the team, but they've done this. They did this themselves, and they just like, you're just so proud of them. You're like, oh, God, it's brilliant. So they, yeah. those three big things are great. Yeah, well, we, watched, um, we watched Super Saturday on telly because we would go in the next day to watch Bolt. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So we were lucky enough to see him win in his final on the 100. But the buzz, we ended up spending the day there on the Sunday and the buzz was palpable from yeah. the Saturday. It just yeah. carried over. And then yeah. some of them came out to get their medals, obviously, when we were there. And it was just just a, a goosebumps all day sort of yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, the village was just on a high for days after that. Yeah. You know, you'd go go and get your lunch and whoever you were sitting with were just like, oh, my God. You know, you just couldn't come down from it. It was just amazing. So were, yeah, you, at, great. were you at the Baggies when Megson was there? Yes. So did you know Aid Stavell? He was yes, the, fitness, the coach, yeah, the fitness, fitness coach. coach. Yes, yeah. So Aid, Aid and I were in the raft together. Ah, and his Aid, his yeah. story's um, a, a fantastic one. Just that opportunity. Yeah. So Aid was a couple of years after me joining the air force, and it was his first tour, uh, his first post in RAF Cosford. And these were the days, as you'd know, people didn't have professional training setups and and stuff. People went places to do preseason training. Yeah. And the baggies came to Cosford to do a training camp. And just by literally who's free, who's able to go and help them. And he went along. He was a bit of a footballer himself. He was from, I think he might have been a West Midlands boy, but he basically went and um, just was was dicked effectively to go and help him with his training camp. <laughs> yeah. And went there and just went, well, the only way for me to be helpful is just to ask him what he wants and give him it. Yeah, and absolutely. he got on so well with the manager that yeah. he basically recruited him. He left the Air Force. He joined them as their fitness coach. And I think he ended up following Megson to most clubs that Megson went to in the end. Ah, yeah, same with um, And it was a brilliant example of just opportunities. And sometimes there's never the right time for an opportunity. It's just okay. when you see it, you go for it and you make it work. And, yeah. and you never know where it'll end up. But what well, it does do, what it does show is that hard work and determination and the right personality and the per, the, the way you're you're prepared to listen and communicate puts you through that door. So it's not doesn't just happen. It's not luck. My best memory of working with Maggie's was standing on the pitch, rehabbing a football player and Megson screamed across the pitch, get that effing woman off the pitch. And I walked past him like, I've been here four years, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> and he followed me in afterwards. He's like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. But he was incredibly volatile, as you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I could just yeah. laugh about it because I did. A, I knew he didn't mean it. He's, you know? a, he's a classic redhead, isn't he? Oh, and he's a thrower, <laughs> throw stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, it, there's not a day that passes by where it doesn't get, remind me that her, the therapy world is such a small place. So yeah. many paths cross and so many people know each other or, or other people. So you mentioned earlier about the benefit of a multidisciplinary team. Yeah. Now, um, I'm of such a similar outlook because of my military background. Of course. We, when I was at Headley Court, we had these multidisciplinary teams. It was comprised of everything from social workers to surgeons, basically, and everything else in between. And it was through that team, you know, we can replace sort of um, athlete-centered, coach-driven with patient-centered, therapist-driven yeah. And, but it was the same format. We all collaborated and worked together to get the best outcomes for that person. So you and I have chatted at length before about that. We know we, know we agree on that stuff. To those who may not have worked in that background and would see other therapists, particularly who may have businesses that they would see as competition near them, how would you sell working to, networking and working together in a team way as a real beneficial thing for every therapist to be part of? 
that's just incredibly easy. I mean, the first thing we have to do is talk about the different names, because obviously you've got your multidisciplinary team, which is just a team of professionals. They're different disciplines and they often don't overlap, do they? Then you've got interdisciplinary, which is another word that's used where you're working in a coordinated fashion uh, but and you're working towards a common goal. And my favorite is what I what I consider when I've worked in the best teams is transprofessional, which comes as being the per- perfect team. So you're composed of members of lots of disciplines, um, or lot, lots of different professions, and they're cooperating all the time across their disciplines. So you're working harmoniously with somebody and everybody knows everybody's roles and they know exactly how to get the best out of each other rather than just which is what happens in the NHS quite often is it's very multidisciplinary and you don't necessarily speak to that person Um, you just know that they're there but you don't necessarily understand their role so you don't get the best out of it when it comes to um, how to I could the difference between being able to manage an athlete or a, a person a human being general public by yourself compared to having a respected and collaborative team around you that you can draw upon for advice, referral, um, just another set of ears, but a number of another sets of ears. What that does, this is how I would sell it. What it does is it gives that person standing in front of you the absolute best you can possibly give them. You haven't cut any corners. You haven't stood there and gone, I'm the only person you need to see. I am the uh, the buck stops with me. Uh, You don't need anybody else in your team. I am the best. Because that's effectively what it could come across as, as because you're keeping them within your fold and you're not looking elsewhere for that help. If you have other people in the system, in your own system, that you can use to benefit the treatment of that athlete or that person in front of you, then they are not only getting bang for buck and are prepared to pay you for it, they trust you, they respect you, and they are incredibly thankful that you went above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah. Did I sell it? Oh, absolutely. I think the <laughs> the power and confidence that you will portray when you say those words to someone, I'm not the best person to help you right now, but I know the person who is. And that actually then is a fear I always think with therapists of that's admitting a failure and you're losing a patient to someone. I can guarantee you now you will nope. keep that patient for life. Forever. And and, and and they will be so loyal and trusting to you and you'll they'll probably bring other people to you because yeah. you've suddenly gone, you know, I, I cannot explain to you any better that you are more important to me than than anything else. Yeah. Um so so we I think that's probably done more than enough to sell the MDT team. So I think it's a really good time to um drop the bombshell on the listeners, particularly those SIF members amongst us, that we have been in discussions with Paula for a number of weeks now we have this shared vision about working as a multidisciplinary team and we are pleased to announce that Paula is going to head up she's going to lead our multidisciplinary team working group forward what we're going to be doing over the coming weeks and months is starting to roll out some options that you guys can take up we're going to have little expert panels of therapists where you can come to us with your patients where you can ask case conferences and questions on a, on a one-to-one basis or as a group. You could even get your patient to have an assessment in as part of a multidisciplinary team setup. So 
stay tuned for that. Get in touch if you want to know more. We're going to be leading that out. But Paula, with that phenomenal background that you've just heard, will be the lead therapist for SIF driving that forward. So whether you want to use it and utilize it as a therapist for your patients or whether you want it just as the wider support network or you may want to be an expert on the panel. So so we'll be coming to you, but do please feel free to appreciate and, and approach us on that stuff. We are looking for members to, to pad out that team and see how we move it forward. So I think wrapping up, there is one thing that I'd love to get your thoughts on, and that is writing a book. You've oh. said, you know, you've done a couple, and, and um, <laughs> I know you've, because you've got such an honest answer to most of these things. There's probably things that people I think are harder than they actually are or easier than they are when it comes to writing a book. So, so tell us how it came about and then the process of how did you choose what book to write? How did you start writing your book? How, do, how long did it take? All that sort of insider info of, of things that people don't know authors get up to. Okay, really good question. Okay, so I'm going to be brutally honest. It's incredibly difficult when you first start, but not if you're incredibly organized. So when I I was asked to write my first book, I was approached at a conference and somebody had said to me after I'd spoken, somebody had said, why do you not teach? Why do you not? Why haven't you put all that in a book, basically? And I was like, I've never even thought about it. So it was like, well, would you think about it? And then that's how it came about. Because so, of course, I wasn't in the frame of my my, mind of writing. I was working full on in elite sport right then. And I had three private practices I was running on the side. So I was busy and I was just like, and if I if it was if it was now. And so I've written uh, three books now altogether. um, And obviously, each one gets a bit easier. Um, and I'm I'm probably the hardest on myself than um, as most people are. So therefore, it can take a little bit longer. So organization is the key. Know exactly what you want to write and um, and how you want to lay it out. I was, you know, I'd come from a background of doing, getting results, getting promoted, doing, getting results, being on teams. So my proof was in my pudding. It was very difficult to put that down onto a piece of paper without keep saying, in my opinion, in my opinion, in my opinion, but you have to, it's the only way. So it's very difficult for me to try to, to kind of almost go backwards in with all due respect to try and put it into words to explain, explain to somebody who doesn't know what, what I was talking about and to try and take my head back to not the doing. And the reason I wrote a book on SIJ and piriformis syndrome is because I've had three prolapse discs and SIJ problems myself and struggled. And I know a lot of people out there do. And so a lot of people come to see me about that. So there's kind of natural progression for me to write about that one because of my own personal experiences. Um, And I always believe, and I'm sure you believe too, and many people out there, when you've got an issue yourself, you get really good at it um, and people come to you for it. A bit like being in the endurance video. So that's not an issue. That's a good thing. But obviously, when people do have repetitive things, um, the same thing when I, ke- when I looked at Achilles tendinopathy, I actually started right. I wrote a big book on Achilles tendinopathy and plantar fasciopathy, which I'm now going to actually publish through Kindle um, because I, I decided I want to self-publish this time. Um, from that, I took the little book, Treat Your Own Achilles, because what I learned from the last book was that so many people bought the SIJ book that had the issue, but it wasn't written for them. It was written for a therapist, and I never thought about the end user, which was bad. Um, well, unfair, and I didn't realize. So lots of people bought that book, tried to scrap their way around it, and um, 
And so I think I I may do an end user one for that as well. I haven't decided yet. But and I went to Achilles tendinopathy because I've had the issue and I've had plantar fasciopathy also. And it's also I'm a jump. I was a jumpers physio, you know, um, and I I looked after a lot of, uh, you know, I was I was working with lots of jumpers. They were my favorite. So um, and so there was always always issues. Um, I was always really um, effective at managing them. So that became the natural progression. So, yeah. So in, in, if you're going to write a book, I, I wouldn't hesitate. Just get on with it. And, you know, the Kindle app seems to be really I haven't uploaded it yet, but it seems to be really straightforward. I think just really plan it. You need to sit down and plan it. And then it's the, the time is taken getting all the research from behind it. It's getting all of that stuff to back up your what you're trying to say. And so there's lots of books out there that are um, manual therapy driven, but not necessarily got lots of research behind it. And I wanted to kind of be able to meet both read both types of readers. Yeah, definitely. And and I can vouch all, all Paula's books are fantastic. What I absolutely Achilles. love about the Achilles book is although you wrote it for the end user, it is pitched at a lovely level that therapists can use it too. Okay. It That's is, good it to is know. It's one of those books that if you just want that simple, it's not a simple written book, but if you want simplicity in how to help people help themselves, then a therapist can definitely pick that book up and learn from it in how to help someone help themselves. Um, I think what I would add, you said something which is really, you know, you've got to have a passion about what you're writing about yeah. of that personal connection. Um, I've not made this public knowledge, but I spoke to, I think it's the same publisher as you for a long time about, writing a big book I wanted to write the bible of endurance sports I wanted this textbook almost and um, they weren't going for it to be honest because they wanted these bite-sized chunk type books so they wanted it broken down into a number of books and we were starting to progress conversations and then um, it was therapy expo last year I signed a book contract to write a book but what we did was we agreed on like this halfway house that I was going to write a book on a particular topic, an injury, not the book I wanted to write. And I know coronavirus has come along and other things, but effectively now I'm nine months down the line. I got three months to deadline and I haven't written a chapter. And, and, and I will hold my hands up and say the mistake I made was I signed to write a book deal on a topic that I just wasn't passionate about. Yeah. And therefore, all that legwork that you said, all the stuff that you have to do first to be able to then have the foundations to write it how you want to, wasn't done. Um, I'm hoping the publishers aren't listening because I need to still get in touch with them and say, listen, this deadline's not going to happen. And I'm now actually starting to think, well, if I want to write the book I want to, which I'll be passionate about, write my own. I'm from that generation where... um, this, you know, um, I, I do think sometimes, and it's definitely wrongly now, but people get criticized for self-publishing as if well, it's not a proper book because publishers didn't commission you to write the book. And it's nice to have a big publisher behind you helping you. But ultimately, and I've learned this on my journey, publishers have certain types of books they want to write they or do. publish. And if your book isn't there, it's not because it's a bad idea. It's just not what they want to publish. Agreed. And, and therefore, write your own book. Go and Agreed. do the book your own about, you know, I teach a course and effectively I want to write the textbook to my course. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I've always exactly. wanted to do. So that when I turn up on my course to teach, I give you the book. Yeah. And that's, you know, if you don't remember a thing from today, it's all in there. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm pretty confident that even though the book I want to write is probably a damn side more work than the book they asked me to write. 
Yes. Then it's going to be easier. You'll love it me. though. It's going to be easier process for me to write. Yeah. And that's so, exactly what I did with the SIJ book. It was a course I was teaching. So the book was just like, there you go. Yeah. Or actually buy it first and bring it with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> or yeah, because otherwise you, again, you, know, I think you can do it other ways. I, I, I can't, I, the way I do my course now is they either get a physical, they get the option, they can get um, a physical binder of, of the 250 odd slides that are on my course, or they can get it emailed to them as a PDF. Yeah. But I still always think with that, that because it's slides and slides intentionally try to leave a bit of the detail off for me to talk about the detail. Yes. Then if you picked up my slides six months after the course, you're probably not going to get the context of a lot of it unless you spent the day scribbling a thousand notes, which means you might have written stuff. You don't really remember what you were writing because you were just busy scribbling. So true. So true. And what I, what I would get, I'd get to the end of something like that and they'd be going, Oh, you know, and can you have, and I say, it's in the book. Don't worry. Don't panic. Everything's written in the book. It's in detail. It actually goes through step one, (laughs) step two. It's all there. And, and something powerful about being on a course where that lecturer or the teacher says, turn to page 29. Yeah. Boom. There you go. This is what we're talking about for the next half an hour. It's going to be supported with some PowerPoint or some practical stuff, but effectively, boom, there it is. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we will be trying to self-publish. I need to find the way that you seem to have invented a 30-hour day and an eight-day week to get all Honestly. your stuff done. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, think, I think this has been, it's been fascinating for me, so I'm hoping it's fascinating for all the listeners. There's so much that you've got. There's so many strings to your bow. There's, we always push the message that it's not about the years you've been qualified. It's what you've done in those years. Yeah. We see many therapists that are only two years graduated, but they work like they've been qualified 10 years. And likewise, we see 10-year therapists that aren't much better than a two-year therapist. And Absolutely. I think what I would always try and explain yourself as is you're someone who has utilized the years that you've been practicing and you've, you've stuffed things into this treatment bag and, and you have so much experience that you're happy to share. So um, where can people find more about you, your books, everything else you do? Okay, I'm going to finish with one statement first, because I think that anybody's looking to work in elite sport, don't forget that if you're ever rejected from something, it's because you're being redirected to something good. That's the first thing. Keep going. Um, My books are available on Amazon. Um, One's on SIJ and piriformis. One's on Achilles tendinopathy, um, which is treat your own. And I am on, I've got a website, www.stt4performance.com. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Paula Clayton STT. Easy to find me. Easy to find me. Brilliant. Thank you so much. We know how busy you are. Thank you for giving up an hour of your day. Paul has been in work all day today and has come literally home, jumped on to to record this. Um, We will chat soon. And to everyone listening, do watch out for our announcements about our MDT clinics and offerings. Paul is going to be the driving force behind that. And I think it's going to be to the benefit of everyone associated with SIF. But as we've talked about today, the patient before anyone else. Thanks, Paula. Thanks for joining us and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you for having me. Bye. As always, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this or any other of our episodes, then please do like, share, subscribe and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find us across all social media platforms as Sports Injury Fix and also on our YouTube channel. Thanks to our sponsors, the fantastic therapistlearning.com the high-quality, easily accessible, curated learning platform for the modern MSK therapist. Stay safe.
keep well. We'll be back soon.